You're listening to the SLP Book Club. We're your hosts, Adrian Frost and Laura Geyser. This month, we're reading The Loving Push by Temple Grandin and Deborah Moore. Let's get into it. Hi, Adrian. Hi, Laura. Welcome back to the SLP Book Club. This month, we're really excited to be discussing the book, The Loving Push by Temple Grandin and Deborah Moore. This is our first episode. We're going to be just going through the foreword, the introduction, and chapter one. But first, Adrian, I have a little bit of news. Oh, share it. I'm excited. So, you know, last month we were reading The Whole Brain Child, which was an awesome book. So many really great takeaways. And I finally used a strategy yesterday with one of my preschool clients. Tell me about it. So specifically, which one did I use? Maybe Engage, Don't Enrage. (laughs) A classic. I had a client who has been in speech therapy for over a year and his mom has to do a lot of practice sessions with him. She tries to get in at least one a day. She's a really amazing mom and and does so much work with him, but I think he is getting a little bit burned out and we've been trying to figure out what to do. And so I was like, "Laura, negotiate." <laughs> I I was he was just sitting there kind of just like crossing his arms, not talking while we were discussing it. And I said, well, what do you think would be fair? How many times do you want to practice your smooth speech each week? And he didn't say anything. And I said, do you think maybe just two times a week would be fair? And he was like, yeah. I was like, okay, so instead of seven, you'll just do two, right? And he was like, so on board with it, immediately turned around We had a great session. He did such a great job with the strategies we use in speech therapy. And I got to share with his mom. I was like, when you're getting any resistance, just try to negotiate. Check with him what he thinks is fair. And it immediately worked. And I know you've said that with your daughter, some of these strategies, you've seen them kind of work. (laughs) Yeah, some better than others. Yeah. So I was impressed with it. That's great. I wouldn't have thought to open up negotiations with a very young child, but it it did seem to have an effect. You know, I think the big thing is that you tried and it worked. So it's like, if it didn't work, oh, well, but it did, which is amazing. So now you have a go-to for that child the next time. Maybe it'll work again. Right. Okay. So enough about our last book. Let's get into the loving push. I do just want to say, as we are going to be talking about strategies that we use with people on the autism spectrum, the opinions and strategies in this book don't necessarily reflect our own opinions. I know that there can be a little bit of controversy about how to intervene with people on the autism spectrum. So we are just going to be discussing the information in this book. You know, we might give our opinions on some of them at times, but so far what I've read has just been just like it says, a loving push, a gentle push towards independence coming from a loving place on the part of parents and other adults in these kids' lives. Do you agree, Adrian? Yeah. And as with all information that we're covering, I think a good rule of thumb is take what works for you and leave the rest. Exactly. So you're your own clinician and you can make your own decisions about what works, what doesn't, what resonates. There's some gems in this book, of course. Yeah. We're learning recently that it's really valuable to get advice on how to work with kids who are on the autism spectrum from people 
with autism themselves. So I love that this book was co-authored by Temple Grandin and Deborah Moore, who's a psychologist and spent her career working with people on the spectrum. Yeah, they're definitely experts and we have a lot to learn from them. Right. All right, let's get started. So first we have the foreword, which was written by Temple Grandin, and she kind of goes through a little bit about her upbringing. So as a child, Temple's parents made all the kids in their family host dinner parties, which is something, you know, it was the 50s. They really expected all the kids to have really good manners and know how to socialize with adults. And she said that this was helpful, not just for her, but for the neurotypical siblings that she had. In particular, I guess she had a brother that grew up to run a bank. Was that right? Yeah. That he even says that he learned how to socialize with other adults from these dinner parties that he had to host. But the book was written because the authors are noticing that older children who are on the spectrum or young adults on the spectrum are not learning these crucial social skills. Their parents and other adults aren't necessarily pushing them out of their comfort zone so that they learn these skills. And that translates into people being unable to live independent, successful lives. So they see four problems that are evident right now. First is that kids on the spectrum are overprotected or not given opportunities to learn to do things on their own. So parents are talking for kids, parents are scared of kids being hurt by mistakes, but mistakes are really valuable because you learn and you grow from them. And Temple gives an example of teaching her first college course totally going wrong to the point that she just walked out <laughs> and then having to overcome that and creating PowerPoint slides that she could fall back on if she did become overwhelmed. So, you know, you live and you learn, you go through mistakes and you learn from them and you take them forward and it helps you to reach your goals eventually. Uh, the second problem that they see are changes in the education system. So really hands-on classes like art, music, cooking, etc., have been removed from the curriculum. And kids need exposure to these things to know if they want to do something. So since these aren't in the schools, parents need to take over and give their kids exposure to hands-on activities. So take your kids' special interests that you see. And a lot of times people with autism will have really special interests, things that they're very interested in. And you can take those and broaden them to areas that have potential for work. The next problem that she mentions is kids graduating from high school without learning basic life skills that they will need, like driving, navigating public transportation, being on time to things, basic hygiene, social manners, following instructions, finishing tasks, and re receiving feedback. So these are all things that we know if you work a job, you need to have these skills and you can prepare kids by having them do household chores, volunteer work, and other things like that. And then the last one, which is a big theme throughout this book, is that now we are seeing kids on the spectrum getting involved in excessive video game playing. So autistic kids are especially vulnerable to obsessive video game playing to the point of addiction. And they see this as a big problem because they're not necessarily getting out and having to engage socially with other people. The purpose of this book is just to help parents let go, give gentle loving pushes, and get children to try new things. So then Temple Grandin gave a couple examples of some loving pushes. She met a teenage boy at a formal dinner party, and she noticed he was clinging to his mom. They had brought 
takeout food for him specifically so he wouldn't have to eat the food at the party. And then he was eating with his hands. And Temple just looked at him and was like, this is a formal dinner party. Use your utensils. And he did. And she said that a lot of times moms can be overprotective, whereas dads are the ones that are more willing to push and see if their kid can reach their potential. I have to say, Temple is like really no nonsense. A lot of the stories in this book, I'm just like, wow, Temple, you did that. (laughs) I know. She has no problem just seeing a kid with autism and being like, this is what you're going to do. Or an adult. I mean, it's clear from some of these examples. I mean, in later chapters, we're going to see she will meet a person and right there on the spot takes it as an opportunity to teach them a life lesson and push them, give them a loving push. It's pretty incredible. She doesn't feel that need to be so like light and sensitive with things. She's just really matter of fact. And I think that's really her using how she was born and her her brain is wired to communicate with people. And because she's working with people who are similar to her, as in they've been diagnosed as on the spectrum, maybe she can relate to them a little better. But I just love her no nonsense, take charge, not worried about, oh, is this going to hurt their feelings? Oh, are they too sensitive? Is this too much for them? She's just like, let's just give it a shot. And I love that. Yeah, it's refreshing. And then she gave a couple other examples. One was she met a boy at the airport who was good at animation. And she encouraged the parents. He was in high school. She encouraged the parents to find opportunities for him over the summer where he could use his interests in kind of a job or a volunteer opportunity. And they realized that a church nearby needed someone to edit some video. And Temple just encouraged them to make sure he actually went to the church, did the work there, didn't just sit at his computer in his room, you know? So the push is not just getting him that experience with a lot of responsibility and having to do something for someone else, but also having to go to the church, be independent, interact with people. It's really important. Yeah. And then the last example was that Temple as a child, her mom wanted her to go to her aunt's ranch for the summer. And Temple was really nervous about it. It was a new thing. It was scary. And so her mom gave her a choice, kind of like the whole brainchild, Mm -hmm. giving the option, okay, you can just go for one week, or you can go for the whole summer. So basically, you go for one week, and then you make a decision if you want to stay. And to prepare Temple, she was shown a bunch of pictures of the ranch. She had frequent phone calls with her aunt leading up to it so that she was getting more and more comfortable. And she ended up loving it and staying the whole summer. So sometimes kids who are on the spectrum, they do have a fear of the unknown. They want things to just stay the same, stay in their routine, and You have to push them to experience new things that you know they could love because they might not initiate those things themselves and then they're really missing out. So then we're going to move on to the introduction, which was written by Deborah Moore. She starts out just saying that there are so many kids with autism who are becoming adults every year. 50,000 kids with autism spectrum disorders graduate from high school each year. And then I just wanted to read the second paragraph of this chapter because I loved it. (laughs) We want to increase the odds that your child grows into an adult with a rewarding, meaningful life. We want them to live at their highest and best capacity. We support them in defining and achieving an individualized and productive definition of success and satisfaction. We hope they have the opportunity to express their unique perspectives, personalities, and strengths. To achieve these goals, they need mentors, guidance, and support. 
They also need structure, appropriate expectations, and frequent loving pushes. They're really coming from this place of your kid is so unique, so individual. They deserve everything that any other kid has. And in order for them to reach their potential and have a really successful life, this is what they need from you. And there are later parts in the book where I realized sometimes when a kid seems so resistant, you feel like I have to just back up, let them have their way because this is too hard for them. But really you're doing them a disservice if you don't push them and help them to experience these things. Yeah. I love the examples that are going to come later in the book of kids who've benefited from those pushes. So yeah, we'll definitely talk more about that. So then she emphasizes the fact that there have been a bunch of revolutionary ideas and advances in our history that come from the minds of people on the autism spectrum. Are we 100% sure on Einstein? You know, I actually Googled it after I read that because I was like, wow, I've never, I haven't heard that for sure. And My Google search said we can't retroactively diagnose somebody, but he did have some of the hallmarks of being on the spectrum. Like he was a really late talker and he struggled in some other areas. So it sounds like most likely, but we'll never really know for sure. Okay. I was like, they so confidently say, they don't say Einstein probably had autism, but you know, Albert Einstein. So we're talking about individuals who have the ability to have a massive influence on our society. And this book was just really written out of concern that recently they're not being given the opportunities to lead social, meaningful, and productive lives if they're too sheltered or overprotected. So we don't want people on the spectrum to be living below their potential. Both authors have seen many teens find productive, meaningful adult lives, but it doesn't happen by chance or accident. Adults provide guidance, nurturance, and direction. Children have to be given opportunities, and you have to build a foundation of practical real-world skills and then find a niche that fits their personal strengths and passions. So we're going to hear the real stories of men and women on the spectrum and details of their journeys are used throughout the book. We're going to learn how to help children have a positive mindset, and they encourage you to not get caught up in labels. Just like you said, Adrian, if you recognize aspects of the children you work with or if you like some of the strategies, take them and use them in your practice or with your own kids if you're a parent because there are some valuable little tidbits in this book. Yeah, I agree. I think so many kids, they don't even have to be on the spectrum. You know, I'm thinking children with Down syndrome, children with language disorders, children who stutter, right? That can really affect confidence, make them not want to do new things that those kids probably would also benefit from a loving push. So yeah, I think it's really applies to many different kids we work with. Yeah, they do include a quick note about terminology. They basically are saying they do use some different labels, some different terms, but no person can be simplified and captured in a label. Labels only reflect part of a person, not their essence. And I just want to say I will probably switch between saying autistic kids, people on the spectrum, people with autism. I know some people prefer label first, some people prefer person first. So it's it's an individual preference. I will probably use both. Like they said, a label only reflects part of a person. So in chapter one, it's called Real Stories, Real Successes. 
eight inspiring profiles. And this is where we're going to be introduced to the eight men and women who are on the autism spectrum, who are evidence of how loving pushes can really help them lead successful lives. Our first individual is Scott. He's 28. He was diagnosed with Asperger's. He found high school really difficult. He had social challenges, but then he found a group of friends and they all played a lot of video games. And he said it quickly took hold. He described it as video game quicksand, which I liked the imagery there. It just sucked him in. But his, you know, he really needed pushes from adults to make sure he didn't just stay in his room playing his video games all the time. At a dinner party, an adult said to him once, figure out what you really love to do, then find someone who will pay you to do it, which is when he, it just clicked. Okay, I love video games. This is a a product, people make them, I could be involved in that somehow. So his mom found him a summer job as a video game tester, which he did for three summers during high school. And then when he went to college, he moved to Austin for work afterwards because a friend told him that's where the video game scene really was. He worked in quality assurance and the job was well suited to him, but it eventually went nowhere. He was laid off and they told him that he couldn't handle feedback very well, was a little bit defensive. The reason he got when he was laid off was a little bit confusing to him because he thought that he had fixed his attitude when he was originally told that. But his mom just says to be really realistic about expectations because some jobs that seem perfect, like, oh, my kid loves video games. This is a great job for him, could have drawbacks. They just said there wasn't a lot of room for him to move up. There were frequent layoffs. But his mom did say it's a great job for young adults or teens because he learned a lot of responsibility when he was in high school doing that job. And then we have Marina. She's 33 has a diagnosis of Asperger's. When she was young, a pediatrician told her mom that she might be in and out of prison. Yeah, no, that's what it said. <laughs> and like wouldn't be able to take care of herself. And I think it's important to stop here, Adrian, and just talk about the horrific things that doctors sometimes tell parents. Oh my goodness, yeah. I know that they could be trying to manage expectations, but the damage they do to parents is sometimes just inexcusable. And I don't know if it's that bedside manner. Like, what is going on with pediatricians who are like, your child will, ne will never talk? Yeah, I don't know. And especially if you hear something like that, and it really stays in your brain forever as a parent. And I feel like Marina's mom was really courageous to push past that and expect more from her daughter because she could have really let that set the expectation for her. And as you'll cover you know, in the upcoming minutes, Marina exceeded expectations and her doctor was wrong. So yeah, I think bedside manner sometimes <laughs> leaves something to be desired for sure. Right. So Marina had some trouble in school. She eventually basically got asked to leave or kicked out of the school. They said that they couldn't help her. Her mom ended up homeschooling her. And her mom says she did the best she could, but wishes she'd pushed Marina more and put her in more so social situations. But Marina says when she found the internet with AOL, <laughs> yeah, she learned a lot. And anytime she was interested in something, she just took to the internet and learned everything she could. She is now a mother and she's married. She runs a program that feeds the homeless every week. She volunteers at the SPCA, and she's in school to become an astrophysicist. She said she handles all the bills for her family, 
and contributes financially by breeding and selling rats, which she learned to do on the internet. Wow. I mean, she's a crafty one. Yeah. My big takeaway from Marina's story was sometimes things look bleak, but you never know what one thing might unlock for somebody like a passion or it can change the course of your life. Like Marina found the internet and that just really opened the door to her future. So you never know what it could be. Right. Our next individual is Jaime. He's 35. He has a diagnosis of PDD, NOS, or high-functioning autism. And this is a real success story. He started out as a coder, and then he became a project manager and now a business analyst at a very large tech company. He sometimes wishes his job were even more technical because that's where his strengths lie. He's super meticulous, and he views problems and solutions differently from others. So He offers this company a different point of view and a different type of work than other people can do. I just put a note. This is the interesting thing about neurodiversity. It's recognizing people's strengths and valuing them for their strengths and not always expecting them to conform to social expectations. So maybe he has trouble socially, but what he offers this company is so valuable because he is so meticulous and He is so good at his job. Jaime says he got by in school, did not perform his best because he didn't really see the point. We'll learn more about his school, how he eventually picked it up in college later. But he has a girlfriend now that is neurotypical, and she helps him understand the way neurotypical people are. He likes to keep a small group of friends who accept him just as he is rather than trying to expand his social circle, which he finds very difficult. And his girlfriend also helps him when he becomes too caught up in his video games. She helps him realize that there is a world going on around him. not just the video game. And he says he's had no problem living independently. He's able to manage his finances. He gets by with his cooking and he keeps his house pretty clean. Yeah, I loved hearing about Jaime's girlfriend. Like, what a beautiful story that he found somebody who was understanding, who was patient and compassionate and was willing to help him Okay, so Laura, you know that I'm really into the peers program out of UCLA. Yeah. And I'm trained for, you know, peers for teens, but also peers for young adults. And I think so many people on the spectrum, which we'll talk about too later on, really crave these like close intimate relationships, but the path to them can be confusing. It can be really hard. It can be winding. And I don't know. I just love hearing a success story. It's like love on the spectrum, that TV show. It just really warms my heart. Yeah. Um, So our next person profiled is Martha. She's 57. She did not realize she had Asperger's until she was in her 30s. And a therapist told her that she might have it. But when Martha said, okay, well, what could I do? (laughs) She was like, nothing. Love that. And then, (laughs) and then eventually she heard a story about Temple Grandin on NPR and then went online to learn more and found the explanation for a lot of the difficulties she'd had in her life. She also had depression, anxiety, and possibly ADHD. It must have been really empowering for her to see someone like her and then to learn about Asperger's and realize, you know, it's kind of just like unlocking this whole thing. 
if you kind of went through your whole life thinking I'm a little bit different than everybody and then you're you finally have an explanation and you can really get that self-understanding yeah once again another way that the internet has really helped because I know she said when she was first diagnosed in her 30s the internet wasn't really available so her ability to research was you know pretty restricted but then when she heard about temple on NPR the internet was more of a thing so she could research it and she had a lot more information for herself which is great yeah so Martha they don't get into it right now I think they do later but she didn't have a super supportive family life she didn't have a lot of really influential adults in her direct family but she said she still learned a lot of life skills as a teen and young adult because she volunteered at a nursing home in her teens she tutored english language learners in her 20s she works with friends of the california state fair doing their newsletter and she's active in church as an usher. She also, in her teens, worked at a radio and TV repair shop, and the owner taught her to answer the phone and interact with customers because at first she found that really challenging. But she says she's never had a romantic or sexual relationship, and she's had some female friends over the years, but she doesn't really enjoy social engagements. So she's learned to, she's learned her boundaries, she's learned to say no so that she's not in situations that she doesn't really enjoy. But she works as a clerk in the science department at Sacramento City College, and that has allowed her just the right amount of social interaction. She really views the people at her work as sort of a family, and she's found the exact right fit for her, and she enjoys it. Yeah, I have a little funny story to talk about in regards to boundaries (laughs) with other people. So I like that you brought up that she understands like her capacity for socializing and what she wants out of situation. So I was talking to my aunt this past weekend and she was telling me that she has a neighbor. My aunt lives in an apartment complex and there's a neighbor who lives like right above her and she really, really, really wants to be my aunt's friend. And she's like giving my aunt her phone number. She's being like really obvious that she wants to hang out and she wants my aunt to like come hang out in her apartment. And my aunt was just like, I don't know how to tell her that I really don't want to hang out in her apartment. I'm really at capacity with my friendships. I'm not interested. And we had my husband and I had to like coach her on how she could handle that interaction, you know, and of course, my aunt is neurotypical. But I just thought it was funny that everybody struggles with that kind of thing, knowing our capacity and knowing how to set boundaries with other people. And so I'm really glad that Martha understands herself enough to say, no, thanks. I'm good. (laughs) And getting back to love on the spectrum, that was something I was really impressed with in the Australia version was it's almost like a superpower of some of these people on the spectrum. They really, if they went, first of all, they were so brave going on all these blind dates (laughs) But then I can't remember the girl's name, but there was one girl in particular where I just really admired even at the end of a date, she just really clearly would say, hey, I only see this as a friendship, you know, really just right away, not leading people on. And these are things that I really struggle with. Yeah, yeah. And maybe it's just a lot more simple. If you do have some neurodiversity, maybe your brain just works in a different way where you say, hey, I know this isn't going anywhere and I need to let this person know so we're on the same page. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I like it. It would be very freeing to be able to set boundaries like that. Yeah. I mean, I also want to point out Martha 
as we continue to read, I mean, keep your ear out because her story develops and it's really fascinating what she's been through. She's yeah. 57. I don't know if you mentioned that, Laura, but she's the oldest person they profile. And I think because she's on the older end, we get to see more of her life. And it's pretty fascinating. I agree. Okay, so our next individual is Cosette. She's 18. She has Asperger's. She is a college student and an illustrator. She had a really challenging childhood. Her parents did the best that they could with the knowledge they had. They tried a lot of different school settings. And I think that's kind of, we've heard that a lot, that kids kind of might bounce from special ed to mainstreaming to, a, you know, a special school, um, homeschooling. So a lot of these people, even though they're on the higher functioning end of the spectrum, they still had a lot of challenges in elementary school, high school. But I loved... <laughs> Her mom said that the best thing that they ever did was love her unconditionally. And then she said, I like Cosette, <laughs> which <laughs> it came across to me as like, she's someone I would pick as a friend. She's not just my daughter. I think she's really cool, <laughs> which I love. Yeah, I love that. But Cosette is now selling her art on Etsy, and she's even had, I think, some pieces commissioned. People are paying her for some pieces, even for the workplace to put up. So she's taken her passion for drawing and is turning it into something that could be a career and lead to a successful independent life. And then we have Daniel. He is 25. He has Asperger's. He is a graduate of BYU with a master's degree in math, and he is currently, or when the book was written was starting a training program with a German software company that specifically employs 2% of their workforce with people with autism. So there are companies that are really recognizing the benefits of having autistic employees and making an effort to snatch them up. Yeah, absolutely. Daniel had a lot of support as a member of the Mormon faith and a member of Boy Scouts. So he just had a lot of different adult influences in his life that always gave him those loving pushes. He attended a co-op preschool where there were already always a lot of parents in the classroom. His older brother encouraged him to do computer programming. As a teen, he attended a lot of social skills groups. And then he went to BYU because he liked that it was focused on both academics and having a lot of moral character. And his parents just really admire him because his big goal is to make enough money that he can donate a lot to charity. So he's just this kind, loving man. And he's been kind of shaped throughout his life by a lot of adults who really love and care about him. And then we have two more. Our next individual is Sarah. She's 36 and she has Asperger's. She is a wildlife biologist with a BA in environmental studies. And influences in her life were her dad who loved nature and taught her a lot about it. A neighbor who had a vegetable garden and had her help with gardening and weeding. And I think we'll find out that her neighbor had her take on a lot more than that. Yeah, I love (laughs) that story. (laughs) So we'll learn more about Sarah's neighbor and how she helped her out. Yeah. And she had a Sunday school teacher she loved that taught her to be kind to herself and others. She also had a really structured class that Sarah appreciated. And she helped her with interpreting sarcasm so you just never know where those influences are going to be where those people who are going to connect with a kid are and she also watched a temple grandin documentary and that helped her really understand herself and to get her job she used family connections that she had to become a wildlife biologist and she just says her autism really helps her with her job because she needs to pay attention to the wildlife in the area and 
kind of document the species living in a particular area, I think. And it can be tedious for some people, but for her, it, it really works. Yeah. Then we have Patrick and he's 26 and he has Asperger's and we are going to learn so much about Patrick in this book. He's an aspiring voiceover actor. And I think we all know those kids where you go. You should do voiceover (laughs) because, you know, sometimes you have a kid in one of your groups who just pretty much communicates in lines that they've heard from cartoons (laughs) or movies. (laughs) And it sounds kind of like that was Patrick. His mom always knew he was different, even as a small, as an infant. And he could get very down. He really focuses on negatives. He focuses on times he fails, but he has all these amazing adults in his life who help him recognize his talents, his strengths. They help him focus on the positive and focus on setting goals and how to get there instead of letting him just kind of spiral in the negative, right? Yeah, right. And very young, his parents recognized that he had a passion for voices and copying things he heard. They taught him that it was okay to do his voice voices at home, but they really taught him where it was acceptable to do his voices, you know, explaining to him, not just yelling at him, you can't do those at the store, but saying, you know, the other people in the store are there to buy things, they have another goal. So your voices could be really distracting. So you can do them at home. And they always explained and redirected him. I just have really been enjoying hearing stories about Patrick and all of the positive influences in his life. And even we get to see pictures of him. Yeah, I love (laughs) that. (laughs) This whole chapter was just setting the stage introducing who these people are because as they go through the strategies in this book they're going to use examples from not just Temple Grandin's life but all of these really amazing adults lives. For me I felt like the big takeaway from this chapter was not only is it really important to create opportunities for these kids so that they can grow and push themselves but also mentors or people in the children's life can make such a huge difference. Yeah, I feel like we talked about that a little bit with Whole Brain Child too. Even if you're only in a child's life for a short time, one person can make such a massive difference and help a kid see things from a different perspective. And you just never know if you're going to be that person. So I'm excited to read this book, learn these strategies, and hopefully be able to implement them with the kids we work with. Me too. Thank you for covering that, Laura. You did such a great comprehensive job. And I hope everybody's excited to learn more about these eight people because you will. (laughs) All right, so that is it for our first episode of The Loving Push. We covered the introduction and chapter one. Stay tuned because our next episode will cover chapter two. We'll see you then. Bye, Adrian. Bye, Laura. The SLP Book Club is not just a podcast. It's a community. Go to facebook.com slash groups slash the SLP Book Club to join the discussion after each episode. Want even more of the SLP Book Club? We've made all the resources for this book, including chapter summaries and visuals, available for free on our Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash the SLP Book Club to download these great materials. To learn more about the SLP Book Club, go to the slpbookclub.com. You can contact us by emailing hello at the slpbookclub.com. Follow us on Instagram at slp underscore book club. Find us on TikTok at the SLP Book Club. 